Most bankers aren't ready to help you until after their third cup of coffee. But with Central National Bank's after-hours service, you don't have to wait for the bank lobby to open to get help. You can contact us from 6 to 8.30 in the morning or from 5 to 10 in the evening, and we'll connect you to a real, live, local person who can answer questions and fix problems seven days a week. Bank different. Bank central. Central National Bank. Member FDIC. Welcome to Women's Hoops and Talks, the what podcast, where we are elevating the voice of women in basketball. I'm Tara. And I'm Cassidy. Thank you so much for listening today. We've got a great show coming up. Today, we are talking to Shireen Ahmed. She is a a writer and sports advocate from Toronto. She is also one of the co-hosts of the feminist sports podcast, Burn It All Down. Thank you so much for having me. Before we get too far into our discussion, because I know it's going to be so much fun, but before we get into it, let's just remind everyone that you can follow the Hoops and Talks podcast on Twitter at Hoops and Talks, and you can subscribe to the show in the Blazers Edge podcast feed on whatever platform you use to get your podcast. Now let's get started. Uh, Cassidy, do you want to start us off with your icebreaker? Yeah, so given Kawhi Leonard's amazing shot yesterday and some of the fantastic endings to Blazer games lately, we're wondering what is an iconic sports moment that you remember from when you were a kid? Okay, well, I'm Canadian, and as such, hockey has always played a part in my life. So I w- this wasn't when I was a really small kid. But I will, without aging myself, talk about 1993 when my beloved Montreal Canadiens won the Stanley Cup. Um, Patrick Watt was, I know this is a a basketball podcast, but when we talk about a huge moment, it would be that. Because I really didn't get into basketball until much later. Mm -hmm. So 1993 is my most pivotal sports moment. And anything after that was pretty much any time Tim Duncan touched the ball. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> so I I think I've mentioned to you both that I'm in Toronto, but uh, my first team was the San Antonio Spurs, and specifically because of the way the Holy Triad on that team, Mono Ginobili, Tony Parker, and Tim Duncan used to play and pass the ball because I'm a soccer player, reminded me very much of how beautiful football is played. And um, everything from winning the ch- championships to just the way they played, their interactions, on the ice, it was 93, but w- when the Spurs won the championship. Boy, it must be nice to have so many championships to choose from. <laughs> uh, I, I don't have a whole lot, but um, yeah, otherwise, you know, I'm, I've been in Canada mm-hmm. and and loving. And I will say this, that the Montreal Canadiens haven't won a championship since 93. So they've been few and far between for me as well. And 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 the team that I love... The Raptors, the city that I'm in, has really grown in my heart. This is our, like, this is, it's been a long time coming to get to the Eastern Conference Finals, so. Awesome. Oh, I can't wait to talk about it more. Um, So I'm going to do mine next because mine is also hockey related, which is odd because I really don't know much about hockey. But (laughs) uh, when I was 11, I remember watching The Miracle on Ice. And (laughs) I... Like, not the movie, but the actual Miracle on Ice, like watching the game happen. And I think that is when I realized that I loved sports. And what I loved about it was you didn't know what was going to happen because that game was so thrilling and it was so unlikely that they were going to get that win. And it just stuck. It's absolutely stuck with me forever. That like chant and everything. I think that was when I really fell for sports. So a hockey one, which is kind of a surprise. How about you, Cassidy? Okay, so this is going to be a surprise coming from me, but mine is also not basketball related. Oh, my God. Um, I have so many Blazer memories that I just, like, I can't pick one. But one for me is I was, I think I was nine years old for the 1999 Women's World Cup. Mm. And that that entire, watching the entire World Cup, I was playing soccer fanatically at the time and watching those women just take over and captivate the entire nation through the world cup was just so inspiring and just made me love sports even more than I already did. And I think really just made me more passionate about following all sports and just having those crazy moments and enjoying them. 
Oh, I'm so excited right now. <laughs> uh, you know, as a couple of Blazers and a Toronto fan, I think we are all feeling absolutely fantastic this morning. We are recording this on Monday, uh, so this is going to come out a few days later. So we don't know what's going to happen with Game 1s, but right now, uh, I would say that we're all feeling pretty good. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> Shireen, could we start off with having you just tell us a little bit about yourself and how you came to love sports? Wow. Uh, sure. That's kind of like a huge, <laughs> huge question. Um, I'm a soccer player. Of a, a, I remember started, I started playing when I was five. And much like Cassidy was sort of recounting that she fell in love. I didn't fall in love with the sport being influenced because I'm older than you and didn't have the, those like women on TV and didn't have access to a world cup at the time. The first world cup was the 91 women's world cup. So, I mean, and it was not well broadcast. Um, I was playing far before then. And um, I just fell in love with the game. I fell in love with it. I fell in love with the grass. I fell in love with running down the line. Although at that age, you're like a bunch of pack of bees following <laughs> the, the, the ball everywhere. I just felt this incredible sense of freedom. And as I got older, um, and also something that I reflect on a little bit is the things that we're socially conditioned to is not be aggressive, be calm, be polite. Those things were not necessary on the soccer pitch. So part of myself was welcome there to be tenacious, to get those goals, to charge ahead. If I beat a boy, it wasn't a bad, a big deal. I remember I had a gym teacher when I was in grade one who said to me, to this day, you cannot beat this boy because it makes him feel bad. And so we started having gender segregated races because in my class, the three top people were always girls. And I remember she specifically said, we're going to do girls on one side, boys on the other. Whereas we hadn't before we had mixed classes. And she said, cause the boys feel bad. So we're talking about fragile masculinity way back then. Right. Mm -hmm. So, and I remembered, I like, I liked running. I was, I'm I, I not long distance. I do not love running. I'm not one of those people that enjoy jogging and stuff like that. But I like sprinting. And I felt that whatever skill I had could be used there. Um, I enjoyed the passion people felt for sports. My mother is an absolutely fanatic Montreal Canadiens fan and has been so since the early 70s. And so watching her watch sports was euphoric and joyous and much like I was last night after that shot by Kawhi Leonard. So it was inherited. She also, you know, was a sportswoman. My father was a sportsman and encouraged me to do so. So it always played a part of my life. Um, and then I think when you're young and, you know, I grew up as the only person of color pretty much in my area and my school, I went to a French school. When you find something you're good at, that makes you not stick out and being soccer made you part of a team. So I wasn't a single individual sport. It made me part of a team, whereas other times I felt very different. I looked very different than everybody else. I was different than everyone else. And those things that are now celebrated weren't necessarily celebrated. And when you're eight, just wanting to fit in, you don't want to celebrate your uniqueness. You just want to fit in. You just, you just want to be the same as everybody else. So, and we're talking Nova Scotia. I was born and raised in Halifax, Nova Scotia. So, you know, there wasn't a massive community of, or diversity. So sports was my way and sports as I grew older became everything from helping me cope with, you know, anxiety that I have It helped me, it just helped me enjoy and create community within the place that I was. It gave me me time. It's part of my self-care. I began to be able to analyze it and critique it from a professional perspective, started writing about it. So it sort of infiltrated into every aspect of my life. I have children that are athletes. So it's just, it's, it's pretty much, it's actually, now that I think about it, I'm talking about it. It's a very, very big part of my life. Awesome. That's amazing. Um, so you are part of the amazing burn it down, burn it all down podcast. And I'm wondering how you got involved with that. This is, I love this story because it's really not what people expect. It wasn't like we sat down. And although one of our ambitions is to smash toxic patriarchy, we didn't actually sit down and strategize like at a <laughs> table of knights and warriors <laughs> as, as, as we think. It, it, it truly began from a Twitter group that I had created where there was six of us um, 
and which included Julie DeCaro, who's the former co-host and a really good friend of ours, Stacey May Fowles, who's a baseball writer in Toronto. And it was literally like a cope group. Like we were getting online abuse, which many women do online, especially those in sports. And it was just a way for us to sort of support each other and prop each other up, share each other's work, um, you know, sort of amplify it. And out of that, it was actually Julie's idea because she works in radio to say, let's start a podcast. And I'm like a what cast? Because I don't listen to podcast. I do now. I did not then. And I was like, I don't know what you're saying. And she's like, we'll just, it'll be really easy. We'll do it. I'll just, we'll find a time. And 106 weeks later, here we are. And, um, it's just been, we've gotten much better. Like I can't go back and listen to our initial episodes. Cause I'm like, this sound quality is atrocious. And, but it shows the growth of where we are and how we run into technical. I'm not technically savvy. I rely heavily on Jessica's husband, Aaron for technical advice. And he lives in Texas and I don't. So we'll always sort of say, Jess, can you ask Aaron this? Or she'll say, I'll ask Aaron. And it's, we do our best. We also have 11 kids and a bunch of cats and dogs as part of the family, which affects sometimes there'll be a dog barking in the back. Sometimes there'll be a child wandering through the recording and saying something. So it's like we manage in the way that we can, but we're also very, and this is a huge comfort to me and a motivating factor. We're very on the same plane of what we want from the show. We want to amplify those that don't get a space in sports. That's most traditionally women of color, non-binary folks of color, but also people that don't get a platform or aren't recognized as being being experts. This is, we're doing 106, I believe this week, episode 107, I'm sorry. We just recorded yesterday. We record Sunday mornings and we have never had a man on the show. And people are like, well, how can you have a sports podcast, not of a man? Well, guess what? It's very possible. There's Mm -hmm. a, a lot of phenomenal people in the sports world who don't identify as being male. That is super true. And, you know, it, and the thing is, is to me, it doesn't take away from my enjoyment of talking with sports with anybody like, you know, wanting to talk with talk with women about sports doesn't take away my enjoyment of, you know, talking about sports with men. It adds a whole nother dimension to me. That's kind of how mm-hmm. I look at it. Yeah, for sure. So and I've I think I've listened to all 106 episodes of Burn It All Down. I love it. So I wanted to thank you and all of your co-hosts for always just putting really thoughtful and interesting conversations out there. It's a it's an opportunity where you talk about, you know, the intersectionality of sports and politics and feminism and all these different areas. Um, and, you know, it's like it's really sports activism. I'm wondering what how do you define like sports activism and why it's important? Well, I mean, part of my journey of being in sports has very much come out of activism, has come in because I'm a woman who's uh, Muslim. I self-identify as a Muslim, and I am an obvious Muslim in the sense of identifiable. I wear a headscarf. So my also connection with sports came in through the fact that I was denied access to play because of my choice of wearing a headscarf. This is soccer I'm talking about. So my foray into that was researching, writing about Muslim women in sports, of which I'm now an industry expert, and um, researching the rulings, the policies behind lack of uniform accommodation and bans on hijab and other types of religious headwear or whatnot. So I came to sports writing, not only with a critical lens of race and gender, but also coming from lived experience. And I do identify as a sports activist. It's what I say I am, because my objective will always be as one looking at those on the margins, how to make sport more inclusive, which is what it was inherently supposed to be in the first place. It's not, it's truly not a place only for white, able-bodied cishet men. Which is a shock to mostly able-bodied white cishet <laughs> men, but yeah. it's really not. It's not the shock to any of us. So it's just sort of rallying for people who also might not have a voice. We were talking right before we started recording about the you know the victories that Portland and Toronto 
that their basketball teams just, um, you know, had yesterday. And I was noting that like all around town now, like people are giving each other high fives and giving each other the nod and like having conversations like just randomly with people on the street who might happen to have like a blazer hat on or something. And that's one of the things that I think is so interesting about sports. Another thing that I love about it is that we we can have a shared experience and that can just be like the starting point for us to have a conversation. You know, it's one of those, it's like, so it's, I get, I'm not sure if it's universal because like not everybody likes sports, but for the people who are experiencing it, it gives you like a little jumping off place where you can start with your like mutual understanding. Like if we don't understand anything else about each other, we understood that the Blazers made it to the Western Conference <laughs> <laughs> finals yesterday. And so we can start from from there. I mean, is that kind of like how one way that activism works is that you find where people like have something in common and you go from there? Well, well, absolutely. What it is, is that when people look at me and, and people look at other young Muslim women or people of color and say, you're different. What sports does is they see me, and this happens all too often, particularly when I travel and people say, what are you coming to the United States for? What are you coming here for? And I say, I'm a sports journalist. They do a double take. But then when I start engaging them in sport, and I'll say, I, I don't do football like American football. Pretty much everything else I can hold my ground on and baseball. I do not do baseball. But I can say that I love the Blue Jays and I really like, I look really cute in royal blue, which is pretty much my only contribution to that. <laughs> but I can hold my own on a series of sports. And when you break it down and you say, I can talk with you, you see their face change. You see their, their body language change. They start engaging with you, especially when, and unfortunately as women, we spend a lot of our time convincing people we know what we were talking about, which is an, which takes away. And, and both of you can probably attest to this. You know more knowledge and you have more, you've retained more knowledge and have more, you know, insight and people will give you credit for automatically just simply because of what you look and sound like. And I find this as well. So when I start engaging people, sport does absolutely break down those barriers. It also unifies. I absolutely find sport as the vehicle to development for tools as a tool of justice can be used as a very practical tool in development. We see it in the global South. People use sports, particularly soccer, because I mean, soccer unifies 22 people in space. Um, automatically without a whole lot of equipment. So it's financially feasible for a lot of programs. So what it does is that it gives you that euphoria, that thrill. It gives you that jubilation and working together in community and, you know, companionship and, you know, just that, that whole piece, which is very important. So I do use sport as a way to connect with other people. I will admit I use sport to be the cool mom because I know what I'm talking about. <laughs> um, although you know, my, my kids will sort of debate with me on, on whatnot. I'll use it to connect with people. I'll sort of say when I'm in Europe, one of the first questions I'll say is when I'm talking to either a service provider or someone, I'll say, who's your football team? I'll educate myself a little bit. For example, I was in Portugal recently and I would say to people, who's your football team? And they tell you right away that it's sporting Lisbon or it's Benfica or it's something else. I'll tell you right away. So it's a way to sort of use something to get in there and 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 really hold a connection and hold space with somebody. Oh, I could talk about, I could listen to you talk about this all day long. Oh. Um, I definitely could. Um, so we were talking a little about, you mentioned the jubilation and joy that brings people together. And you live in Toronto and the Raptors just made it to the Eastern Conference Finals. And we're kind of wondering how fans are reacting there and what the feels like in Toronto right now. Well, the beginning of the season, preseason, was a bit difficult. I mean, we traded DeMar DeRozan, who went to San Antonio, and he was somebody they admitted he didn't want to leave Toronto. We're used to having really good players who want to leave. He was a really good player who didn't want to leave. And just a bit of DeMar DeRozan, as I'm sure you might have talked about on your podcast, he talked. He did a lot of things for a lot of people. He talked about mental health issues in the NBA. He talked about his own stuff. So he brought forth different conversations to the table, which might not happen normally. So he was a beloved Raptor for sure. So we started this. I knew who Kawhi was because I've been following this cat for a long time. So I'm not going to be like, I told you so, but all you people, I told you so. So <laughs> when... Kawhi comes in. He also came off of an injury, and he's a very quiet, very reserved um, sort of introvert. So he wasn't out there. And then people were making memes about his first couple of pressers because he would smile. And they're like, what was that? I'm like, that was him laughing because he's not often 
but I'm used to that because I'm used to following a basketball player, Tim Duncan, who's not, he's very quiet. He's reserved. He's not out there showboating at all. And his way, he's very wonderful. I appreciate all the showboating. I'm there for Katie. I'm there for Harden, but I'm just saying that these are, these guys aren't like that. They're just, they're different. They have different personalities. So quiet coming to Toronto, I had big hopes because I know what he could do. I know, but, and it wasn't until I saw him play in person in February, I went to the Lakers, uh, sorry, not Lakers, the Celtics Raptors game. I watched him on the court. I watched him work with his teammates. I saw how he and Marcus Gasol were passing the ball. Serge Ibaka is a genius. I think he doesn't get half the credit he deserves. Like at one point when he made All-Star, he was like averaging four blocks per game. Like he's a defensive master. And the way that they were weaving Kawhi in, we've seen it. Um, There's something called the Kyle Lowry playoff Kyle Lowry, which is inconsistent. And I actually shushed my kids and told them they weren't allowed to talk about that in our house because only good energy. So there's a lot of criticism of him not following through. But what... Kawhi has done is not only do his role, but help support others. So he's the numbers point to it. I mean, he's averaging huge numbers in playoffs and he's, he's, he's trained for this. He's literally readied for this. Um, I hope he likes Toronto. The fans here love him. I think the fans here love him way more in 18 years. You'll see a whole bunch of Kwai's all over the place uh, <laughs> or even next year. And I think that like they'll be getting into getting drafted. I'm sure they'll be quiet getting drafted from Toronto somewhere into <laughs> universities and stuff because that's just the way it is. But he, what the team has done is give us this hope because I don't know if anyone remembers, but in 2001, Vince Carter missed that exact same shot and has haunted the city ever since. So that exact same shot was sunk last night, bringing us just, or the city erupted. I know my son happened to be, um, happened to be videotaping he had 20 kids over it was his birthday yesterday and they came over to break fast together not everybody was muslim so whoever was fasting came over to break the fast and his friends just came over it was wonderful but the way that room shook because you've got 20 18 19 year old boys like jumping up and down so we literally the room shook but it was just a shot that you know i think we deserve that we Mm -hmm. hope for and you know, as Blazers fans, you deserve that one. When I checked into the Portland game yesterday in the second quarter, or even in the f- fourth quarter, the Blazers were down. And I was like, I know it's only a four-point game, but I need the Blazers to be up at this point. We so, feel you on that. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. I want a 10-point game. Otherwise, I will not relax. My experience in basketball tells me two and three points is nothing. 30 seconds is the equivalent of two hours. It's tantamount to basketball time. It's a lifetime. So unless there's a very, very, very big lead, which I've also watched the Raptors blow. Don't get me wrong. I've watched them blow eight-point leads. So I'm not going to rest. So that's kind of what yesterday, but getting back to that fan reaction, we're exhausted. Half the city has lost their voice just cheering and happiness. It was cold and it was rainy last night, but still there's a place outside the Scotiabank arena called Jurassic park. That was packed. People were out there jumping, excited, happy. Oh, it's a wonderful feeling. It's a wonderful feeling. Yeah, the fan reaction videos from Jurassic Park are amazing on that last <laughs> shot because you can see the wave of emotion with every bounce. It's just incredible. <laughs> and bounce. Bounce is the key word here. Because yeah. Those, those three bounces were the longest bounces of my <laughs> life. Oh, my gosh. So what do you think the – or how are people feeling about the chances of them making it all the way to the finals? You know what? I had this little moment yesterday. I was thinking about us recording today. I said, wouldn't it be lovely? It was the Port in Toronto final. I thought that's, you never know. Weirder things have happened. I mean, I'm a soccer player and I'm a sports writer and I follow soccer. Weirder things have happened in the Champs League. So also the Warriors don't have Katie. So I am just saying not everything is as cut and dry. And Toronto goes, we're going to face Milwaukee, number one in the East. Giannis Atitacampo is a beast. He's an incredibly gifted 
player. But if what like Portland did yesterday is lock down their defense, that's what we need to do. We need to play smart around him because other than giving him the ball and him watching him take one step from half to the free throw line, because seriously, he takes like one step, he's there. And the second step is a dunk. We shut that down. It's going to play smart. We've got to pass smart. We've got to be quick with the ball and play off our strengths. I think we have a good shot. I, it'd be really interesting. I'm not writing off the Raptors, particularly of what they did. I do think they'll drag it out to game seven because that's just how Raptors do. They don't, they won't sweep anything unless they get swept, but they'll pull it out just to, you know, because of my, my nerves, they'll make it push it to game seven. But, um, it's a team with a lot of heart, and that counts for something. It, and it kind of feels like they sort of broke through after the last few years of just, you know, coming up against LeBron all the time and, you know, having that be like kind of the hard stop for them for the last few years. And now they've broken through and that's, you know, that's not a barrier for them anymore. They can just keep going. Um, I'm super excited to watch Kawhi and Giannis play against each other because I was watching uh, the highlights from la- last night's game and thinking, I love watching Kawhi run. And I don't yeah. know why. He's like sort of like a compound little bullet, just like you know, <laughs> compact. He just like, you know, he kind of gets small and down low and he just like, you know, runs and that's like the exact opposite of what Giannis looks like when he runs. He looks like a <laughs> gliding bird. And yeah. I just I can't wait to see the uh, the two of them play each other. Um, but you had an interesting uh, point about uh, what if Portland and Toronto meet each other. And that's actually really been on Portland's mind a lot because Portland has Ennis Cantor. And there's a lot of really interesting things that we've learned about Ennis Cantor since he came um, in February. And one of them is that he can't travel internationally um, because of uh, Interpol would arrest him is what we understand, um, you know, because of the situation in Turkey. And so we've all been thinking, oh, you know, if Ennis Cantor, um, you know, if the Blazers play Toronto, then they're going to miss Ennis Cantor for half of the games. And we're already down one center. Um, and then the other thing that's interesting about Ennis Cantor is that he's one of actually three Muslims on the team, and he is one who practices um, Ramadan and fasts during Ramadan. And, you know, this has been on everybody's mind a lot. And I just thought this would be a really interesting time for us to – a good time for us to learn more about what – about Muslim athletes and what it's like for professional athletes who are Muslim in the league. So – you know, as as you said that you're you're a Muslim woman, and um, so I wanted to ask you some just some kind of questions about you know the faith and um, the athletes who are practicing it. Like, what is it like for them? So, I guess my uh, our first question is our um, like, what are some things that fans of you know sports or fans of basketball in particular should know about uh, the Muslim religion? Um, you know, for our athletes who are who are out there playing. Okay, well, first of all, it's an extremely personal decision. Like like you said, there's three Muslims on Portland's roster. Ines Cantor is one of them. Sek- Muse, Amu is the second one. Aminu, sorry. Yeah, Al Farouk Aminu and Yusuf Aminu. Mm-hmm. And, um, and I think it's really important to understand that those three don't make the same choices. The second point is, those no two Muslims have the same opinion. So the way that Cantor practices, Amina won't necessarily do that, and Nurkish won't necessarily do that either. So we're not a monolith. And thirdly, Muslims that do observe, they know what they're doing. I need to slow clap this one. We know what we're doing. So very often, sports media presents, oh, this athlete is, and I've seen this in my experience. And just as a side note, one of the reasons I started sports writing was because I hated the way Muslims were spoken of in the sports realm, whether it had to do with Ramadan, because we've seen the couple World Cups, soccer World Cups happened during Ramadan, the one that we just saw last year and the one before both happened during Ramadan. So and, and the Euros. So this is important to, to note. And so what happened is the narrative spun out is that it's dangerous. It's this, it's that, how brave. You have to understand, and Ines Cantor also wrote a beautiful essay in the Washington Post. And the first place I'll tell people to what to do is to go read the athlete's own story. Read what he wrote. He knows what he's doing. He actually paralleled 
basketball and his faith as something he goes with passion and commitment. And I think this is really important. He also has a professional team of dietitians and physicians monitoring him. So it's not like this guy's rogue out there not eating for 18 hours a day. No, he gets up for a pre-dawn meal, will have less of an arduous workout, and his team knows this. This is what the coaches are paid for to do, is to manage the players on their team with the needs that they have. So he'll also get a certain amount of nutrition before that. And if he's you know, during game time, because it's eight o'clock, usually around sunset, I believe he could be on the bench. He'll be packing in dates, uh, which are like actually chockfuls of nutrition um, and sugars that his body would need and minerals. Or he'll have, as he said, six peanut butter and jelly sandwiches with tons of water because this man knows what his body needs. He has been fasting for the majority of his life most probably as a lot of athletes that are that dedicated have been doing. Like I started fasting when I was 11. I know. And I'm 42 now. I know what I'm doing. I play soccer. I fast during Ramadan during my matches. I know what I'm doing. I'll do less during the day in terms of a hecticness, uh, having a hectic day. I'll take tons of water. I'll take some dates or a piece of banana bread and I'll break my fast whenever I need to. I'll sub off if I'm playing or at halftime I'll do what I need to, and I'll replenish with as much as I can. Um, I prefer water, but if sometimes I'll have coconut water or I'll have Gatorade to replenish the electrolytes. So that's something that I think everybody needs to understand. You don't need to panic if you find out your athlete is fasting. Please don't panic. A, it's not helpful. B, you just look really, really ignorant. And yes, athletes who have who do do this have been doing it know what they need and there's also a lot of athletes who decide not to for buzzfeed two years ago i actually wrote a piece and i profiled 15 different athletes who did train and fast during ramadan or they they practiced and uh competed rather and so not everybody had the same story um some decided not to i profiled nadia nadim who you know in portland mm -hmm. she used to play um for the thorns and she opted not to fast what during ramadan because she traveled a lot and when you're traveling you actually don't have to fast this is something else that i wanted to you know share with your listeners is that when you're fasting and in the month of ramadan if you travel it is not required you have the choice to fast because of the ardors of traveling so if Enos Cantor was to travel, he would be under that exemption. There's also an exemption for breastfeeding, for pregnancy, for diabetes, for people that have to take oral medications. Then you obviously have a condition where it's not incumbent upon you to fast. Children, like if you're people who struggle with mental illness, sometimes like it's up to them to decide. Fasting is not supposed to destroy you physically. It's supposed to strengthen your spirituality. So that's where that is. So, I mean, I appreciate him talking about it publicly. I think it's a beautiful part of his practice and he wants to share with people. I also really like that he mentioned, really liked the fact that he texted Hakeem Olajuwon, who famously fasted during his uh, NBA championship season and won. When he was with Houston, he won. Mm -hmm. And while, like, while he was fasting and Back then, I remember reading, and I was like, these stories are terrible, like the way people are were writing about him. And Hakeem was a very lovable guy. So it was just, it was very funny to me to keep seeing that. And we see it all across sports. So I'm grateful that, you know, he took his platform to talk about it and to share with other people, to teach people a little bit also about Ramadan. So it sounds like one of the misconceptions is that you know, people who are fasting are, you know, putting everybody around them at, you know, not really at risk, but like, you know, when you're part of a team, one of the, one of the misconceptions would be that you're like, you know, sacrificing the team or whatever. Um, and that is wrong. Like you're saying people who fast, they know what they're doing. They've been doing it a long time. And it also sounds to me from what I've read about it that like, and you kind of alluded to it, that there are some guidelines, like it's, you know, they're, if you can't make it one day because, you know, something happens and you, you know, are going to collapse or whatever and you need to, um, you know, drink some water or do something like take care of yourself, then you can there, – there's other ways that you can make it up. Is, is that – am I understanding that correctly? Yes, absolutely. Like for another, another exemption, like I mentioned, the medical exemptions, if a woman is having her period, she doesn't have to because she's of the blood loss anyway and the low iron, right? She's not – she but, – but that being said – 
if I have my period for one week during Ramadan, I have to make it up at another time, which I actually personally choose to make up in December because the days are much, much shorter. <laughs> so that's what, that's what, it's not cheating. It's, yeah. you know, you just do it when you can. And that's when I choose to make up my fast. But if you're diabetic and you actually are insulin dependent and you can't, which is totally normal and understandable or have, you know, my mother has a heart condition and is not allowed to fast at all, like forget December or May, what you do is you give a little bit of amount of charity to feed a person for that day. Um, and you can do that instead. But if it's not possible for you to do that, you're exempted from it. Um, and this is only for Muslims after puberty, like children obviously don't fast. Um, um, and you wake up for pre-dawn meal. For example, I have a son who's 14. He's six foot five. He plays competitive volleyball. They're going to nationals this week. They're traveling across the country. He has practice on Monday and Wednesday. So, and, and and leading up to nationals, he really needs that energy. One of the fast days, we didn't wake up in time for the pre-dawn meal because we're exhausted and getting up at three in the morning to eat pancakes or whatever, beef bacon or whatever. I think I make him milkshakes, banana milkshakes with protein. He didn't wake up in time and neither did I. I could fast through the day because I could take a nap. I work from home. I'm able to do my schedule that way. He was in school all day. He would have been completely wiped out and he wanted to keep his fast even though he didn't wake up. My recommendation to him was don't do it make it up later, especially on practice days. That's a conversation I have with him. And he made the decision to sort of agree with me and defer to what my suggestions were. So there's an example, and I'm just parlaying that into the lives of, you know, he's only, he's very young. He's not a professional athlete by any means, but some of the logic that people would use that if you missed out on the pre-dawn meal, what would happen? And lightning will not strike you. That's not going to happen. Like you make your intention to do something. A lot of practice in Islam is also predicated on intention. You make an intention to do something good. You make an intention to participate and, you know, please God by doing this thing. But if it doesn't happen, that's okay. It's not the end of the line. It's not like you pack it up, Ramadan's over for you. No, there's also like 29 other days to do it because it's a 30-day month. Um, But also it continues. It's not like you can only do it in that time. You can make up for your fast after if there's a due cause, but there's also definitely guidelines. And there's thousands of years of, of, of practice on this as well. Also the idea that you, you should do something in Ramadan. I mean, historically battles were fought during Ramadan where warriors were fasting and, and Muslim armies were fasting. People have, you know, they work. There's teachers, students, mothers are mothering constantly during, um, one of the most difficult times for me was when I was fasting and I had four kids under five. And that was wow. ridiculous. And then, then I, w- I, it was too much for me. And so I had a conversation with my physician. I said, I don't think I can do this. And she's like, that's, I don't think you should do this either. And we talked about it and I decided I would make up those fasts later, or I would do one day on one day off. It's not supposed to destroy you. Like I said, it's supposed to strengthen you. And so people make up, make with educated decisions. They make what's make up what the idea is. And then, like you said, not to hinder also me fasting with four kids, like just to get back to the point about those around them, I'm not going to do something that's detrimental to those around me either in terms of my mood. So if my energy is low and I can't parent because I'm too exhausted, that's not going to help those around me. Now to parlay that into, you know, trailblazer speak, Inez Cantor is not going to put his team in jeopardy because it's a team that he's also put a tremendous amount of effort in too. So he will do this with an educated way. And he has a plan. He definitely has a plan. Mm -hmm. So that is being put into place. I think one of the most fascinating things about this process for me watching and learning more about uh, everything from what he's been saying is that that sense of clarity that he also gets from going through fasting and from experiencing the month and uh, observing. And I was wondering if you could speak a little bit maybe to that. Well, I mean, that's his experience. Yeah. I mean, I'm not going to say I get hangry by seven o'clock. I'm not going to lie mm-hmm. with y'all. I absolutely get hangry and I love coffee. I'm a coffee drinker. This year I've been very lucky. I haven't had the withdrawal headaches that I usually have. So it's not always beautiful. Like I'll talk about my experience. It's not always this gorgeous moment of clarity. I have been finding that when I get up in the morning, um, we get up in the pre-dawn meal at around 3.30, stop eating by 4. We have a very specific calendar that we're given, like astrologists, uh, astronomers, and, and scientists give us the exact minute 
that the sun starts to rise. Like today, it's 4.21 a.m. local to Toronto, or we know exactly. So we get up before then. If we're done eating by then, it's perfect, right? So then you go, you do your worship and you go back to bed. So then we wake up as normal, but we just, you know, don't have breakfast. But I found that in the morning, when I sit down and get my work done, I get tremendous amounts of work done because I focus. I also focus knowing I'm not going to be in this mind frame by 2 or 3 p.m. I'm going to, my sugar will be low. I'm going to be tired. I need to get this done now. So I, I really prioritize. Mm-hmm. Whereas instead of like, you know, stretching out three hours of work over six hours is because we're also multitasking, which also happens, I will sit down and I will nail it all out. And then I can be a little gentler with myself. And if I have to lie down, I tell my editor, listen, I'm going to take short nap. I'll just like 45 second minutes of a break. That's okay. I used to work as a frontline counselor uh, at a uh, settlement agency. And my manager was so aware. She says, instead of you taking coffee breaks, why don't you combine that and just like have a 20 minute nap in the restroom in the afternoon, which was very thoughtful of her to remanage for me. Like it was, it was great. So there's things that people can do to get through that. And as far as the clarity goes, there's moments of beauty and peace, but you're also making a conscientious effort because it's not just about not eating or taking water. It's also about your conduct. Are you more patient? Are you engaging in conversations that would otherwise frustrate you and irritate you more quickly? Are you yelling at your kids as much? One of my biggest, biggest successes on the second day of Ramadan was I didn't forget at one of my kids for doing something that otherwise I might have. So I'm going to take those little wins and maybe that's a clarity that Cantor is speaking about, which applies in different ways of his life. Are you being patient? Are you being kind? Are you being aware of those around you more so than you would be? Are you, like your senses are heightened a little bit, right? Because you're very aware of your physical state. Also, let's not forget one of the main purposes is, is to actually feel the hunger pains that those that are less fortunate actually feel. Are you giving charity? Are you are you just stuffing yourself at like a buffet at the end of the night? Or are you being aware of what's going around you in your community? Are you doing acts of good? Are you helping people? Mm-hmm. So it's a lot of things. And hopefully what we learn and we practice in this month carries us forward for the rest of the year. So this this is so great. Thank you so much for uh, taking the time for to sharing sharing this and, and discussing with because you know I mean talking about religion on a basketball podcast is <laughs> a little bit not what people's regular um, you know regular programming is and but I think it's really <laughs> important when somebody is willing you know I I hope that you feel like we are respectfully asking these questions because I think that's something that you know that's how you learn about other people and again like sports was just kind of like the connection to be like the jumping off point to learn a little bit more about it so now we know a little bit more about like what Cantor is going through um you know you talked about your own specific experience but you know provided us with some um general idea of you know of what um people are supposed to be thinking about as they're going through Ramadan and fasting so thank you uh, for coming on and uh, talking to us about it. I want, we're like beyond the time that uh, we said that we were going to, do you have time for one more question? Of course. I'm sorry if I went on a bit too. <laughs> No, not at all. It's so interesting. But mm-hmm. you, you mentioned um, uh, Hakeem Olajuwon as somebody that, you know, Cantor has said that he has talked to. Are there other, sorry, that was my phone going off the background. Um, are there other uh, Muslim athletes or especially, um, uh, basketball players that we should learn more about? Well, there is one uh, who I really, 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 really respect to his name is, you might have heard of him, Mahmoud Abdul-Raouf. He is a retired basketball player, but he's one who I think is really, really important because he actually, um, when he was in Denver, he played for the Nuggets. He sort of was this form of an anthem protest. And he's a basketball player who instead would stand there and supplicate, but wouldn't, didn't want to participate in that. And he was blackballed from the NBA. He came out now because of all the discussions on Colin Kaepernick. People are like, oh, we remember this guy. Yes. Do you remember how you wrote about him? Do you remember what you did to him? Do you remember? He also used to fast as well. And I think there's histories of forgotten players that uh, are coming up. Um, 
And he's definitely someone who I would suggest to people. I know Dave Zirin has written about him and, you know, he's been written of a lot and he's become more vocal. Mm -hmm. And there's just, that's definitely where I would start. Um, Hakeem Olajuwon, as I said, is, is someone else who is, you know, impactful and does things in like a beautiful way. There's, there's also, I think there's, there's some things that we have to keep in mind that not everyone might be as, as vocal about their practice and might really keep it to themselves. There are, um, you know, there's Ersan Ilyasova. Ilyasova, yeah, that was a hard one. Sorry. And originally Turkish as well. And, you know, I think that that was really interesting because there was a little bit of discussion about OKC and, uh, you know, the whole Muslim thing because Ines Kandra had everybody eating like halal meat, which is really interesting. He had them all eating, um, you know how Jewish communities have kosher meat, while Muslims have what's called halal meat, and that's slaughtered in a certain way. So that was pretty much on the roster for the OKC team. He got all of his friends eating like shawarmas and donairs, and I think that's that's really, really important. A lot of people don't know um, Dion Waiters is also um, a Muslim. You've got Aminu, who you already mentioned, you have um, Amir Asik of the Pelicans. Okay. Um, there's a couple of others. There's, uh, who else do we have? Uh, the Timberwolves, if Georgie Dieng. Mm-hmm. Um, and Kenneth Fareed of Denver. It's, it's, it was really informative where you talked about kind of like your decision about fasting and when you do it and when you don't and what the um, the different things that you can do if you choose not to, you know, other ways that you can still um, practice without fasting. It was all like super enlightening and it makes you – because, you know, as somebody who is ignorant of it previously – you know, I didn't think about like all the nuances to all of these guys' decisions to fast or not to fast. You know, it's like, oh, is, is someone's a better Muslim than the other one because he's fasting and he's not. And it's like, no, it's not about that at all. It's about what you've decided to do. So that was like super uh, helpful to have that discussion. I, I guess another one that another person that I want to go learn more about for a variety of different reasons is Kareem Abdul-Jabbar. I mean, he. Um, oh yes, I, I imagine like foremost. when he. <laughs> Yeah, well, it's like it was it was so long ago, like we're really focused on what's going on now. But like you talked about Muhammad Abdul Rauf, you know, how things were different then. Like, I also want to go back a little bit farther and find out what things were like with Kareem Abdul-Jabbar, because that was like even longer ago. Yeah, he was very, from my knowledge and my understanding of what he's written, he was extremely private about his conversion to Islam. Mm -hmm. And I think that was for a very specific reason, because how he was feeling Muslims were portrayed in society and in media, Mm -hmm. and how would it look. Um, He's an incredible writer. Kareem Abdul-Jabbar now writes, I think he's a columnist at Time, and writes very impactfully and beautifully on issues of social justice and faith, Mm -hmm. um, because they don't always... um, they don't always go seamlessly. Um, so he is someone who I think a lot of people look to as a leader in a way. He's also a phenomenal basketball player. I mean, how many how many records does this guy have? How many rings does he have? How many records has he broken? And he, the way that he conducts conducts himself is with utmost dignity, mm-hmm. and that's something that I hope that Muslims who do have a platform aspire to do. Um, and I think that that would be, that would be really important to look back and look at him. And I, you know, absolutely. I know I went with Abdul, um, remember the Bill Rowe first, but of course, Karim Abdul-Jabbar is, is the first one that we think of. And I just, I also think it's important to realize that, you know, not everybody follows a practice in the same way. And that's also very important. One is not a better Muslim, if they choose not to fast, like the whole idea in Islam is that we're not the ones to judge. God judges. He's the one who judges, not us. So what might look to us on the outset, you actually can't judge someone's character. You don't know if somebody is fasting all the time, but is actually a really terrible person. You don't know that. And you were not only judged on whether how many fasts we can check off on the calendar. We are also going to be held accountable for our actions, our words, our ways. So, and, and, and also we don't know someone's medical situation. 
Mm-hmm. Those are things you can't tell. Like I knew somebody who pulled me aside and she said, I'm really embarrassed. I can't fast because people see me drinking water and like, how come you can't fast? How come you can't fast? She was struggling with mental illness and she was taking medicine and just didn't want to announce it to the world. So there's also an etiquette, like for your listeners, if you see somebody who's Muslim identifying and is not fasting, there could be a multitude of reasons why. And maybe they don't want to share that with you. Maybe they don't want to share it at all. So the fact that Ines Cantor is out there being public about his fasting is great. Maybe there's a reason why other players aren't. I'm not inferring anything. I'm just saying that not everybody is this public all the time. And, you know, we learned that from Kareem Abdul-Jabbar. He was very quiet about his practice, his worship, his ways. He was very quiet and very, very, very respectful about it. He didn't push it on anyone else either, but he was he wanted to keep it private. Well, Thank you so much for all of that. It's um, uh, really helpful for me anyway. Cassidy, did you have any other questions or should we go ahead and wrap it up? I feel like we're, we're, ta- we're, we're taking all your time for the day. Um, uh, but where can people find your work? Um, I am on Twitter very often at, uh, at underscore Shireen Ahmed underscore. And my website is www.shireenahmed.com. So it's S-H-I-R-E-E-N-A-H-M-E-D. Um, and you'll find me there. I freelance. You'll find me burn it all down every week, um, mostly. And so, yes, and you'll find me those those places sort of amplifying and wherever I get an opportunity to publish. So, Well, once again, thank you so much for your time. We really, really appreciate it. Cassidy, you want to take us out of here? Yes. Thank you again. And that's going to do it for this episode of the What Podcast. Don't forget, you can follow the Hoops and Talks podcast on Twitter at Hoops and Talks, and you can subscribe to the show and the Blazers Edge Feed podcast on whatever platform you use to get your podcasts. We love email, so don't forget it. Our email is hoopsandtalks at gmail.com. You can follow Tara at TCBBigs with two G's and you can follow me at Cassidy Gemmett with two M's. Thank you so much for listening and go Blazers.